0: Hi, this is Natalie and Whitney, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on the Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. Today we're continuing our Quick Hit series designed to review high yield topics for our yearly in service examination. Today we'll be discussing facial reanimation. So, to start, we'll begin with some anatomy of the facial nerve. So there are three segments, intracranial, infratemporal, and extratemporal. And in general, we get tested most commonly on the extratemporal branches and anatomy of the facial nerve. We'll go through all, uh, the remainder for completeness sake. So if the infratemporal region contains the narrowest portion of the fallopian canal of the petrous temple bone, uh, also called the meatal foramen. Uh, temporal fractures for this reason can cause facial paralysis if this canal is involved. The initial infratemporal branches control parasympathetic function to the lacrimal gland and the parotid gland. Uh, The next three nerves branch at the level of the mastoid. First, the nerve to the stapedius muscle, second, the sensory auricular branch, and third, the corda tympani. And this nerve is that which supplies taste sensation to the anterior two thirds of the tongue and provides parasympathetic innervation to the submandibular and submental regions. So the extratemporal branches uh, start as the nerve exits the stylo mastoid foramen passing anterior to the posterior belly of the digastric and lateral to the styloid process of, uh, of the temporal nerve or temporal bone Um, It divides superior and inferior, uh, at the posterior edge of the parotid gland. And so the superior and inferior division give us those classic branches we learn. I'm a mnemonic person, so I love the two Zanzibar by motor car. Motor car. So two temporal Zanzibar is zygomatic, uh, bi is buckle, motor is marginal mandibular, and cervical is car. So however you remember that, I uh, you, you, you got it. Okay. Next, we'll go on to some important anatomic landmarks uh, that are frequently tested uh, about the extratemporal facial nerve. So the temporal branch can kind of be uh, outlined by Petengi's line, which is half a centimeter below the tragus to 1.5 centimeters above the lateral brow. This lies within the temporal parietal fascia. um, And this branch does not arborize And so it's more likely for permanent injury if transected. The marginal mandibular nerve lies superficial to the facial artery and vein. And uh, vein, uh, water under the bridge is kind of a good way to remember this, that the um, nerve is above the artery and vein. Uh, It's also located above the inferior border of the mandible in 81% of people, so majority here. Uh, Also, does not arborize. Um, So more susceptible to permanent injury, just like the temporal branch. The zygomatic and buccal branches do arborize significantly. Therefore, um, there's not a total benefit to fixing the nerve injuries uh, to branches of the zygomatic or buccal medial um, or lateral medial to the lateral canthus. Uh, All muscles receive innervation from facial nerve from their deep surface, except for the mentalis, the levator, anguli oris, and the buccinator. So you can remember that as MLB, um, which receive innervation from the superficial surface. So uh, when we do our physical exam, just some quick ways to test these branches. Uh, To test the frontalis, you can raise your eyebrows. To test the orbicularis oculi, you have them close their eyelids the zygomatic branch have the patient smile and for the orbicular sporus have them purse their lips. Thanks
1: so much, Natalie. I, you know, love the mnemonics as well. Otherwise I tend to forget everything. Um, so I always use that one for the facial branches, even what, now that I'm, you know, a fifth year resident, which is a little embarrassing. So now we're going to be going into some of the causes of facial paralysis, and we are mainly focusing on extratemporal causes of facial paralysis because there are intracranial causes of uh, facial paralysis. However, we typically don't treat those um, etiologies as commonly. Um, Those are typically seen by ENT and neurosurgery. Um, So. Getting into some of the causes that we are more frequently that we more frequently seen and are more frequently tested on. Uh, the most common cause of facial paralysis is an iatrogenic cause or Bell's palsy. Uh, Bell's palsy is a diagnosis of exclusion. Uh, so you have to really exclude all other causes of facial paralysis. Uh, in general, Bell's palsy uh, resolves completely in 70 to 85% of patients. So really, if a patient comes in with new onset uh facial paralysis, and they don't have really any other cause for facial paralysis, reassure them that in most cases, they will get better without any treatment. If the paralysis doesn't completely resolve, the most common remaining problem is with ectropion or inability to completely close the eyes. Further, steroids have been shown to be beneficial in Bell's palsy. If they're used within the first 24 hours of diagnosis, they can reduce the amount of time from onset of the symptoms to complete resolution. Moving on, trauma is the second most common cause of facial paralysis, especially in the adult population. Uh, It is most commonly caused by transverse fractures of the temporal bone or penetrating wounds to the face. Uh, Repair for the injured facial nerve um, is, in general, you should, think about doing this within the first 72 hours before neurotransmitters uh, get depleted. So within the first 72 hours, neurotransmitters are still functional and therefore the nerve can be stimulated or the distal end of the nerve can still be stimulated. So you can find your distal target. After repair, uh, you should wait about six months before any further investigation because nerves do take a really long time to regenerate. So patients may still have um, signs of facial paralysis three, four, five months after repair, but should start to be getting better by that point, by kind of like the six-month mark. The next most common cause of facial paralysis is a tumor. Um, If you're thinking neoplasm, um, patients generally present with unilateral facial weakness that slowly increase over about a three month period. So if you have, for example, on the in-service, a question where an adult patient is coming to you with slowly progressive facial paralysis, you may want to start thinking about tumors. Common tumors that cause facial paralysis are uh, primary parotid tumors, acoustic neuromas, and metastases from other locations to the parotid gland itself. Um, Another cause of facial paralysis is infections. Um, Most commonly, these are viral infections such as varicella, herpes, or EBV. Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is caused by a varicella zoster virus infection, um, which is associated with facial paralysis, ear pain, and rash within the external auditory canal, and you treat this with steroids. Lyme disease is another infection that can cause uh, facial paralysis and is most commonly associated with bilateral facial palsy. In this uh, situation, you treat the Lyme disease with doxycycline, and the facial paralysis resolves with uh, resolution of the Lyme. There are also congenital causes of facial paralysis. Um, One of the most commonly tested causes of facial paralysis in the pediatric patient population is Mobius syndrome. The definition of this is a congenitally underdeveloped cranial nerve six or the abducens nerve and cranial nerve seven, the facial nerve leading to unilateral or more commonly bilateral loss of eye abduction and facial paralysis. So these patients are described as having like a flat faces. Culp syndrome is another common cause of facial paralysis called congenital unilateral lower lip palsy. It's one that we happen to get tested on patients in this situation have normal resting tone, but do have marginal mandibular dysfunction with activation. And therefore patients or parents normally notice when their baby is crying that they have a unilateral, um, you know, difference in activation of the mouth from side to side. This tends to be associated with other major congenital anomalies in about three-fourths of patients, so it does warrant workup of uh, with a pediatrician for things like other cardiac anomalies. Finally, just something that we do get tested on in the pediatric patient population uh, who are presenting with unilateral facial weakness, you should obtain a CT scan in order to evaluate the temporal bone because temporal bone abnormalities can, in fact, lead to congenital temporal bone abnormalities can lead to uh, congenital causes of facial nerve paralysis
0: all right now that we have some causes and anatomy we can talk a little bit more about uh testing specifically and then we'll move on to treatment so for the physical exam we alluded to this a little bit earlier but you really want to evaluate um you know the tip of the head to to the to the chin so for the eyes um you want to look at the lids see if there's any ectropion which is the outward turning of the lids corneal exposure, incomplete closing of the eye, uh, like lagophthalmos, which is the, um, where, when the, the eyelid kind of lags. Tear production, if there is um, kind of a decrease, you'll look for that. And then you can test for visual acuity as well. You also wanna evaluate the nose. So we look for nasal, nasal obstruction, um, and this can come from paralysis of the nasalis muscle. We also evaluate oral competence and speech and uh, any deficits here can come from paralysis of the auricularis oris. So there is a classification system here for grading nerve um, deficits. It's the House-Brackman facial nerve grading system, and it goes from one to six with one being normal and six being uh, no facial function at all. So um, I'll just go through the, the middle here, but it's good to know that kind of scale. So you can make some good educated guesses in the middle, but two, uh, one normal, two slight mild weakness, three, moderate um, facial symmetry and weakness, but your eyes do close. Four, uh, moderately severe, total facial asymmetry and weakness with incomplete closure of the eye. Uh, Five is severe, which is barely detectable movement. And then six, as we talked about, is no function at all. So uh when thinking about diagnosing um these pathologies a CT scan is good for evaluating tumors and bony details um and then we also mentioned kids with unilateral facial paralysis uh the CT can evaluate those temporal bone abnormalities MRI is good for evaluating the nerves specifically and then there are also nerve studies uh like EMG or ENOG e- um when we move into treatment, there are a couple of considerations that we can make with patients. Uh, generally goals are restoration of symmetry at rest, restoration of dynamic expression, corneal protection, and then also restoration of oral competence. Um, additional con- considerations are con- uh, from the uh, treater's perspective is time from injury. At about 18 to 24 months and definitely by three years, the facial muscles have kind of will have gone undergone denervation and atrophy and are therefore not able to be used for further reconstruction. We also consider the status of the nerve and the completeness of the paralysis when choosing um, a treatment modality.
1: Um, so like you said, we're going to get into some operative techniques for treatment of facial paralysis. Um, and we're going to kind of go up the ladder as far as how to treat facial nerve, facial nerve, really injuries. Um, from the kind of easiest way to treat it to kind of more complicated treatment modalities. So obviously, if you have the ability in a patient who's presenting with to you with a sharp injury to the facial nerve, you're going to want to do a direct repair. So in patients who are trauma, trauma patients with sharp injuries that have no loss of the nerve length, try and just suture the nerve back together at the time of injury, or at least within 72 hours of injury so that you can stimulate the nerve endings. So you know where to reconnect all the nerve endings. The next kind of step up in reconstruction would be an interposition nerve graft. This allows for direct repair of a nerve when a a gap does exist. So precluding direct tension-free repair. In this case, expect that the nerve will regenerate at about 1 to 1.5 millimeters per day and can be monitored by an advancing tonal sign across the cheek. Kind of the next step up in um, reconstruction is using things like cross facial nerve grafts and nerve transfers. We're going to go into that a little bit more. So, first, cross facial nerve graft. So, this is indicated when there is Um, The proximal ipsilateral facial nerve stump is unavailable for grafting. So for example, if the facial nerve injury is really high, so it's intracranial, or um, the nerve has been resected, such as in the case of a parotid, parotidectomy for a tumor. Um, The second stipulation for use of a cross-facial nerve graft is that the distal stump is still present so that you still have distal targets. Number three is that the muscles are still capable of functioning after reinnervation, So it can't be a significantly long time since the injury, such as Natalie said, it can't be, you know, within that when we, we start thinking about around the 18 month mark, but if it's been more than two to three years, we really can't use a cross-facial nerve graft because the muscles will have denervated completely. So using a cross-facial nerve graft, we oftentimes use a sural nerve graft because it's easy to uh, harvest from the leg. Um, It doesn't provide any motor or functional deficits and is long and therefore provides us enough graft. So we use the serial nerve graft to connect the fascicles of the corresponding peripheral nerve branches from the non-paralyzed side to the paralyzed side. So we basically take the non-paralyzed facial nerve, take uh, parts of the fascicles on that side, connect them to the serial nerve graft and then kind of connect across the face. Um, because you're taking innervation signals from the contralateral nerve, this allows for really good symmetric facial movement um, because your one facial nerve nerve is basically now powering your entire face. Um, Something you do need to be aware of is something called a babysitter procedure. So this is generally used if the denervation has been about six months. uh, So from the time of injury that we're thinking about doing the cross-facial nerve graft. In this case, we take 40% of the ipsilateral hypoglossal nerve, and that's transferred to the facial nerve stumps, so the distal stumps, in order to prevent atrophy of the muscles while we're waiting for the cross facial nerve graft to um, regenerate. So we're basically waiting for the signals to kind of move that one to 1.5 millimeters per day across the sural nerve graft. And all this is doing is really preventing muscle denervation while we're waiting for that to happen. The next thing we can talk about is nerve transfers. Again, this, these are indicated when, again, the proximal ipsilateral facial nerve stump is unavailable for grafting that you still have distal stumps present and the muscles are still capable of function after renervation. However, in this case, the contralateral facial nerve is unavailable for use. So think of this in terms of bilateral facial paralysis. So for some reason, you have kind of both of your facial nerves that are out. Um, For these cases, the masseter nerve is most commonly used as the nerve transfer. So you basically are hooking the masseter nerve up to the distal stumps, of the, uh, facial nerve that are still there. You can use the hypoglossal nerve as we do in a babysitter procedure, but this isn't favored because it causes tongue atrophy. Um, and using the hypoglossal nerve bilaterally would actually lead to tongue paralysis. So the master nerve is preferred. So the next thing we can think about is regional nerve transfers. So this is indicated when basically the muscles are unable to be used due to long-term atrophy. And there are a couple of uh, regional muscles that we can use to help activate or provide some facial sens- facial and animation. The first one is a temporalis muscle transfer. Uh, this is most commonly used for animation of the eyelids, ala, or oral commissure. Um, it's used more commonly than the other option, which is a masseter uh, muscle transfer because it has a greater Arc of excursion and adaptability to the orbit. Uh, the next kind of regional muscle transfer that is sometimes used is a masseter muscle transfer, um, and it's most commonly used for motion around the mouth. Um, these, however, have really fallen out of favor in um, because of the use now of free functional muscle transfers. Again, these are indicated when the muscles are unable to be used due to long-term atrophy. The advantage of a free functional muscle transfer is the increased ability for spontaneous and symmetric expression, because you can, in this case, use a contralateral facial nerve graft or cross-facial nerve graft if that's available. And because oftentimes you do have a uh, better excursion of the muscle that you're using. So in general, Um, we favor the gracilis muscle. It's our, the muscle that we typically use for free functional muscle transfer for facial reanimation. Um, it's commonly used to it's due to its reliable vascular pedicle. Um, it's one direction of pull. It has no overlying tendon. It has a single nerve that we can use to help to either a contralateral cross-facial nerve graft or to a masseter nerve if um, you're in the situation like a Mobius patient who doesn't have bilateral um, facial nerves. Other muscles that are potentially used in this situation are the pec minor, the serratus, and the latissimus muscle. This in general can be done in either one or two stages, a two-stage approach Means that you're using a cross facial nerve transfer followed by the free muscle transfer. So, in stage one, you take a sural nerve graft, you hook it up to the contralateral facial nerve, you wait about six months to allow that uh, cross facial nerve graft to, to regenerate so that the signals are ready to go. And then you hook up the gracilis muscle and you uh, connect it to the cross facial nerve graft. In a one stage procedure, you use a basically transfer the muscle and then hook it up to the ipsilateral masseter nerve, which is sitting right there ready to use. Um, The reason that we don't always use the masseter nerve or people don't love using the masseter nerve is that you don't get spontaneous or symmetric smiling. Um, Basically, you have to like teach the patient to clench their teeth in order to activate the gracilis muscle in order to get that kind of like smile or activation of the facial muscles. Um, There are a couple static procedures that we can do. Um, These are mainly for in and around the eye and the eyebrow. So for the brow, we can do a brow lift. Uh, Versus weaken the contralateral side with Botox in order to provide better symmetry for the eye. We oftentimes are treating lag ophthalmos or basically that the eyelid doesn't fully close so that you, the patients are getting corneal irritation. In general, we treat this by placing a gold weight within the upper lid. Uh, The placement is superficial to the levator aponeurosis and the tarsal plate within the inferior portion of the plate, about two to three millimeters from the lash line. And you place this gold weight um, between the medial and central thirds of the lid to, and your goal ultimately is to bring the upper lid within two to four millimeters of the lower lid to allow full coverage of the cornea to prevent corneal irritation. We sometimes patients also do present for treatment of ectropion. Um, that would be, we can treat that with a canthopexy, um, for paralytic ectropion or a full thickness skin graft for cicatricial ectropion, like in a patient that's had, um, a sharp injury to the face and has a secretarial chirpian. For mid-facial suspension, if you're trying to get better uh, symmetry there, you can do a souffle lift. The nose sometimes does have um, collapse of the external, like the uh, basically collapse of the ALA. So you can treat that occlusion or stenosis with slings, with a rhinoplasty or with a suture suspension. And um, some patients do just have asymmetry at the oral commissure, and you can treat that with facial strips for static suspension slings of the soft tissue. Um, Finally, just some other complications that we deal with within, or specific complications that we deal with within the facial reanimation population is synkinesis and hyperkinesis. So synkinesis is unintentional motion of one area of the face produced during intentional movement of the other area of the face due to aberrant regeneration of nerves that have been injured. And these can be treated, this can be treated with retraining or Botox. Hyperkinesis is a hyperactivity of the contralateral or normal side of the face in a facial paralysis patient. And again, this may be treated with Botox and or mirror feedback. Um, So with that, that is a very brief run through of facial reanimation. It's one of our favorite topics here at Duke um, and one of our favorite topics of our chair here at Duke. So hopefully we were able to share with you some insights that will help you on the in service this year and stay tuned for some of our final episodes. Thanks so much. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natral is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more visit neutralsurgeon.com as a